Will, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show. Thank you for being here. Yeah, glad to be here, guys. Great. Um, so my first question is, can you tell us about Quantalytics and why you started it? Yeah, great question. Um, and to, the, the true answer is that I didn't necessarily start it. My business partner started it and then brought me on to help figure out how to grow the thing. Um, so it really sprang from his vision when he was in banking and he was basically at the intersection of the technology um, used to manage the balance sheet as well as uh, managing the balance sheet and the strategy behind it. And the truth was all of that technology was built in say the 80s and 90s and hadn't really been updated in a long time. And so his goal was to create this comprehensive unified analytics platform um, to basically do all of that. And our ideal client, um, there were going to be these large, you know, all the big banks you've heard of in the U.S., you know, your JP Morgans, your PNCs, your regions, um, et cetera. And we got, we basically spent the first year getting laughed out of meetings because um, they were like, there's no way we can allow two guys to come in and, and replace all this mission critical software. And so that was a big, big learning step for us and uh, really made us sit down after year one and, and have to assess kind of what are our options. So what was the like sophistication of the idea in terms of like how much it was built when you joined? Was it just like, a, we're going to replace the whole everything and just build a banking data operating system? Or did you have like a kind of single feature? Like we, you know, this one particular type of thing people look at, we have like a dashboard for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, looking back, right, it's it's funny how how clearly, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And the hindsight looking back was that we had no idea what we were doing when we started the company. And we didn't really have anything built. We assumed that, you know, um, this is a real pain point amongst, you know, a lot of other people. We assumed that we could easily go find clients and that Enterprise sales, especially to banks, wouldn't take, you know, no less than a year. A lot of false assumptions that we spent um, demystifying that first year. Um, and so that was tough. That was really tough. Um, but again, we managed to get through it and actually secure our first customer in 2018, where we built what you would call our MVP. That was actually functioning software it wasn't pretty by any means but it did the job so you guys come to this conclusion that um you know jp morgan's not going to buy your product what is your what are the steps that you took after that meeting where you guys came together and like okay let's let's figure this out yeah great question um so at some point after getting enough no's we, we sat down and said okay like let's look back at our assumptions at why we're doing this and sort of just take a pin and like strike through, you know, the ones that from these meetings we've learned clearly are not gonna work. And so a couple of them were, you know, this wasn't a real problem for banks. Um, this wasn't a big problem for banks. Um, and, you know, there was obviously the whole risk side of the equation for them. You know, they weren't in a position to take a risk on a two-person company and quite frankly couldn't 
And so once we figured out those things, we said, okay, well, what's still intact and what can we do with it? And so at that point we said, okay, we still think that there is a need for sophisticated data analysis um, and, and data management, et cetera, for financial institutions. And we said, okay, well, how do we go out and test that? And what we started to do was use data that we had in-house to put together these very, uh, I wouldn't call them data intensive, but very informative presentations where we go and present at little round tables and conferences to financial institutions. And it was interesting because that was somewhat of our like mechanism uh, to get the conversation going with these people. Um, and I'll give you an example. After one of the presentations we did, our, at that time, first client came up to us after and said, wow, like you guys seem like you're really good with data, financial data. We'd love to schedule a meeting because we, we could use some help on a few things. And so that led us to our first client where, you know, we built our MVP and went from there. In terms of your personal risk management, were you two both still full-time employed during this kind of like full year of, I guess, not having a lot of encouraging external results to speak to? Because that's a really long time, uh, in my opinion, to go without external encouragement, especially if you don't have another source of income. Yeah, yeah, no, we were, unfortunately, we were full-time with Quantalytics. And so that first year was pretty painful. Um, as you can imagine, uh, we were lucky enough to get accepted to the uh, Innovation Depot's Velocity program. Uh, that was January of 2017. That gave us some seed capital, you know, which we were able to use to to very modestly pay ourselves. But it was still, you know, financially a very tight year. We'll put it that way. Uh, so. <laughs> Me and Lewis always look at each other before we ask the next question. Uh, we try and stay off each other's heels. But um, yeah, so I'm from Birmingham. You are in Birmingham. Quantalytics was founded in Birmingham. That's one of the ways that I, I found you in Quantalytics. Um, and Innovation Depot has done a lot for the city in terms of the startup environment. How uh, I, I think uh, 2017 was, was pretty early, right? I, I don't know which um, cohort you were in. But how was that experience? Are you still in Innovation Depot? Um, could you speak just a little bit to the the startup environment in Birmingham? Yeah, happy to. Um, yeah, I mean, we were very fortunate to be in that very first Velocity cohort in 2017, um, and I think that one will forever be will forever be a very special one um, for a number of reasons. But we had an incredible experience. I mean. It was a very diverse group of founders, um, very doing very different types of businesses at very different places in company life cycle. Um, so we made friends that we still stay in touch with um, today. And um, I think since then, they, they sort of tweaked that program. And I'm not sure if the program's still running, but we had a really great experience. And I think Innovation Depot is, is a really fantastic resource for founders um you know obviously it was a little bit uh, a little bit tricky during the pandemic um navigating that but they just hired um 
a new CEO. Her name's Brooke, and she's doing a remarkable job at really fostering the right culture, bringing all the parties who need to be in Innovation Depot in Innovation Depot. And I think really creating um, what can be thought of as like a true startup hub and central location in Birmingham. For someone who I've you know spent a lot of time in Birmingham, I've never properly lived there. I went to school in Tuscaloosa. Is it like a you know there's like one location when you say central location? We're saying like we're not like talking about like a metaphor. It's like a communities and like there's like a room, not a room, a building for Innovation Depot. It's like a whole. Ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys, if you haven't been, you should certainly pay a visit. Um, it's it's this massive building. Um, I don't even want to put a square footage guess out there because of how terrible I am with estimates on that. But I think it's it ha- it's it's got enough capacity to the capacity to house over like 110 different companies or something. Um, but it's a huge space. There's individual offices that you can rent if you're a company. And then there's a lot of like co-working space kind of scattered throughout the building. Um, and not only that, but there's like a Crestline bagel that's in the building, um, conference rooms, et cetera. And it's just right downtown. Um, so yeah, you guys should definitely t- check it out if you haven't already. Amazing. Kyle, one thing I wanted to ask, I think that I'm not is super, super clear on as the full, and I think that'll be like a helpful piece of the story as well for everyone, is the full kind of present day. This is... I'm looking over to the corner of the screen. April of 2023. I had to think that hard to remember where I was in time and space. But April 2023 is where we are. Where is the business in terms of, so kind of end of 2018 or so, you get a nice inbound kind of lead, turn into building an MVP that you kind of build in tandem. Mm -hmm. What's like the present day state of the platform? You know, fully self-service? Is this somewhat like a white glove managed service? Yeah, great question. Um, so it's an interesting one because my business partner, Chris, has a, a pretty large vision for the company. And if we look at where we are in context of that vision, right, I think we could be maybe 20 to 25% of where we want to be. Um, but at this point, I would say we've taken that MVP that we built back in 2018 and we've turned it into a really, really sharp product. Um, that's in the hands of multiple clients at this point. So really it's been getting that to a, you know, a very um, solid state and then also making sure that it is a scalable product and that it does satisfy um, the needs of multiple users. So it's not just like a single product for that single client that we got in 2018. Do you classify as a as a SaaS? Like, can a business just decide they, or not a business, a bank just decide? I heard about this from my friend who works at this other bank. I want it, and like that night, they're kind of onboarding themselves, or do they need still like a human and a team to? Because if it's like a lot of legacy infrastructure, I imagine yeah. it's pretty difficult to be compatible out of the jump with a big legacy company. Yeah. So, so our product ingests internal client data, um, and when you look at a lot of financial institutions. There are a lot of legacy software systems that don't quite have the plug and play capability that modern technology is built on. And so there's certainly a period where we have to get in there and be a little bit hands on in bringing piping in that data to our platform. Um, the good news is that we're, we're getting much quicker and we're building tools that, that automate a lot of that process. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit ongoing. I would say to go back to your original question, we like to think of ourselves as about like 90% SaaS and 10% consultative. Yeah. And the bigger that Quantalytics gets, the more banks that you see and the less, uh, legacy infrastructure that you haven't seen. And so the onboarding process gets easier and easier as you onboard more and more. Um, what is the, the vision that your business partner has laid out that you guys are 25% of the way to? Yeah. So what he likes to, uh, the, the phrase that he likes to use is that he wants to be the Bloomberg terminal. If you guys are familiar with a Bloomberg terminal, he wants to be the Bloomberg terminal of financial data and analysis. So we're talking banking, banking world, oil and gas, anything that involves intensive financial data analysis. He wants this platform to touch and be the number one solution for users. Is that like an internal thing? So like for people within banks or just like even including hobbyists to like analyze the state of the financial world? So as far as my understanding, it would be it's enterprise focused um, and less mm -hmm. consumer focused. That makes sense. What are some things we were talking kind of beforehand about the, the company that I'm running kind of where I've taken a very different approach to playing in the data and analytics space, like less with a market in mind, less with a specific use case in mind, more so with the skill set right, of data analysis, automation, pipelines, reporting, and, and et cetera. Are there things that you feel would have been a different go-to-market strategy in terms of product development that, you know, starting from zero, you would do differently? I think, uh, one, you know, one of the most, um, critical assumptions we didn't think about when we first started was the importance of marketing and getting your name out there and being what I call a part of the broader conversations. And what I mean by that is, you know, Chris and I, Chris is my business partner. We didn't come from marketing backgrounds, right? I came from finance. Um, he was, came from, you know, a very technical background and banking background. And so we just weren't really necessarily wired to think about marketing per se. Um, and for the first, we'll call it four or five years of the company, we just kind of, you know, we hardly, we honestly hardly put anything into marketing. And it wasn't until last year that we actually brought on a PR and marketing firm. And that's been game-changing as far as our ability to go to conferences, to meet new people, to almost what you could think of as become like a real entity within the space. And what's that? what that's done for us is a couple of things. Number one, it's broadened us like credibility um, because people are seeing us in publications, you know, that are validating who we are and what we're doing. Number two, it's obviously building a pipeline as we meet new people at these conferences and events and get inbound leads, et cetera. But I think the most important thing and, and, and probably the most important answer to your question is that it's allowing us to have these conversations with what you could call the market. And so basically it's a mechanism for us to be gathering data from the market of what do they really care about? You know, what are their real pain points, et cetera? 
And so tying it all together, I would have found ways if I could go back and do it over again, I would have invested in marketing, going to conferences, et cetera, being a part of that broader conversation much earlier on, as opposed to kind of internally just trying to figure it out on our own without any sort of feedback. Yeah, I think that you've done a great job uh, in the last, I don't know, 12, 18 months, at, just as a you know person from Birmingham, I've seen Quantalytic, Quantalytics all over the place. But I'm, you know, I am also on like the Birmingham Business Journal and looking around for for startups and I'm a finance major, so, uh, or was a finance major. So it's definitely, I'm the target audience. Um, but kudos to you guys for, for turning that around because I think that, you know, the the credibility is is here uh which is exciting so what from here what are you guys' growth plans because you know you've uh remained a small team you have a bunch of clients you you've gained that credibility i know you have this ultimate vision but what are the next couple of years for quantalytics yeah yeah kyle i appreciate the compliment and um to answer your question how we think about growth is that we've been very fortunate as a company to be able to bootstrap our growth from revenues from our clients. Um, and that goes without saying our clients have been tremendous ones to work with. Uh, you know, Alabama power is one of our clients and I absolutely love working with them. I mean, I think they're doing a lot of amazing stuff around innovation and they're just a really pleasant team and group of individuals to, essentially build product with. Um, so as we think about growth and what that means for growth is it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a song and dance, right? Between our product roadmap and what's available in the market. And so what we do is we say, let's look at our product roadmap. Let's look at where we want to go next. What, you know, what modules or what features, et cetera, we want to build next. And then we go to the market. And we try and find what we call a partner, whether it's a bank, financial institution, mortgage company, you name it, who needs that product, that module or that feature. And we say, look, let's partner. We'll build this thing out in tandem with you and we'll give you a really great deal on it. All we ask is that you provide us feedback and we get this thing to a place where we say this is doing the job it needs to with flying colors. And so it's really important as an early company and you're building, you know, very sophisticated or very critical product. It's really important to pay attention to who your, who your early customers are, that you're essentially building this product, right? Um, because their feedback is going to be the feedback that the success of your company is contingent on. Um, so as we move forward, Right. Our goal is to go out and continue to like think very critically of who we're meeting. Is there an opportunity to partner there? And if so, then for what product or module that we want to build? Yeah, I have a meeting today at 4 p.m. That's basically a follow up for something like that. So we have been building a feature idea in tandem with one of our clients at, you know, a massive discount because it's still the development phase and it's kind of coming to a conclusion and we're saying, okay, how do we turn this into the proper offer for you all and how do we turn around and sell this to all the businesses just like you all so it's like we found an internal stakeholder from that team who wanted this and wanted it badly enough that they didn't totally care that it was fully mature yet and they're like i'm happy to 
have the resources of your team to build this to maturity. And then Novel will have it and they're happy enough with that outcome and the discounted rate. Yeah. I mean, that's case example of what you look for, right? I think, I think that's spot on. And I think the important thing, you know, like we have an advisor for our company that has told us time and time again, your first 10 clients are your most important because obviously for revenue and validation purposes, but more importantly, because they shape your product and who you are as a company. So it's extremely tough, but if you can be selective in the early days of who you partner with as a client. And the referrals mean a lot to your business. The, uh, they're a big part of building the, the name or the reputation in what you call the, the broader context or the broader conversation. Yeah. I mean, referrals are, are worth their weight in gold. Um, you can, you know, you can be a company, you can have a LinkedIn profile, you can, you can be spending all the money in the world on marketing, but if no one trusts you, then it's, it's worthless. And you know, the richest currency when it comes to trust is having peers talk to one another about the quality work that you're doing. Wow. So yeah, that's the best thing you could get as a company. I'm curious the, so your team size, I, I think the rough ballpark headcount's like under 10. Mm-hmm. And do you have, and yourself with your co-founder, do you as a small team all come together in an office every day? Do you all kind of work from home? Do you have a hybrid model? Has that changed? Has that been the same since the beginning? How have you structured that? Because, you know, you have self-employed flexibility, uh, but it's funny, a lot of people end up choosing something that resembles the similar culture anyway, as if they're not just because of the structure. Yeah, I mean, we we used to come into the office every day pre-COVID. And post-COVID, we switched to a hybrid model where Chris and myself will come into the office maybe once or twice a week. Um, and pretty much the rest of the week gets all remote. Um, you know, our CTO is, is in Boston full time. So obviously we don't really see him very much in person, but, but we do have probably two to three times a year, what we call like a management planning session where we fly our CTO in and, and we, you know, pick a destination like, you know, Purcell Farms or something. And we go spend two or three days there really kind of assessing like everything that's going on, you know, what's going well, what's not going well, et cetera. And sort of plan out like the next year all the way down to like, you know, three months, one month, et cetera. And you find that that's uh, been like productive, the hybrid, like it's not been yeah, I mean, it's, co-founder. It's, it seems to I, work I out pretty well for us. I think one of the one of the things we do that that I think has been very beneficial. It's seemingly small, but I think seemingly very important um, is every day we do a stand up as a company where you know key management personnel hops on a, a ten minute call and we just all go round robin saying, "Here's what I'm working on today." Um, if I need something from someone, then informing them and just kind of giving everybody updates on where things stand. Um, and so that's like, I think having that daily touch base is like very important and very beneficial. And I think like keeps a lot of the, oh, there actually is a person, you know, up in Boston, you know, 
working every day for us makes that much more real than if we only talk to one another once a week or something. So you started out in banking and in investment banking. I think after college, you went to New York City uh, and then you came. Uh, I don't know if it was back to Birmingham or if you're from here, but um, how has how did your investment banking days kind of inform what you're doing now? Do you miss that sort of environment? Um, I know it's it's probably very different than the startup life. Yeah, I mean, to be to be quite honest, um, you know, in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I became a political science major solely for the reason because it was the hardest major on campus. Um, because I didn't know what I wanted to do, I taught myself finance and taught myself finance because I didn't know what I wanted to do for my career and knew finance would be a great foundational skill set and knowledge base to start any career. Um, so got into investment banking, you know, with that objective in mind. And I think it was, you couldn't ask for a better, in my opinion, I'm biased, obviously start to a career because you learn how to read financial statements. You learn how to tell a story with financial statements. You learn how to put together a presentation that's very well articulated, concise, and captures the essence of what's going on. Um, at, at a detailed level within the company as well as high level strategically. And so those skill sets really, I think, teed me up to what I think could be quite a few different options as a career. And ultimately, you know, it led me to Birmingham uh, for private equity. And that ultimately introduced me to my now business partner, Chris, and uh, to ultimately start this company. And I think a lot of those skills that, you know, I gained in investment banking, I still use today. Because um, at the end of the day, you know, pitching your company, whether it's sales or finding investors, is telling a story and telling a story in a very compelling way that makes people want to buy into who you are and what you're doing. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly been a very clear line of like the skills I learned early and the skills and things I still do today. Uh, I think this will be my last question. Like, what's your overall read on this market? Because it kind of sounds like you entered this situation because you you know had friends have an idea and he knew you as a effective operator to grow that idea. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of if you were, you know with a clean slate, is there like a, and didn't have this and, or there's two of you, right? You had a clone. Uh, what would that person be working on or what market would they be building in right now? Uh, so th and this is, you're asking this, like, just take Quantalytics out of the equation. What, what is exactly. Okay. Or you have, you know, a clone of you that manages all of your responsibilities at Quantalytics. Yeah. So you suddenly are completely freed up to also build something else. So basically where do I, where do, where do I see opportunity in the market right now? Um, and also excitement, right? It's not yeah, just purely passion. Like, you'd also like, like a level of personal interest in, yeah. in capturing the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, so one thing that has been incredibly valuable to me over the last two years is I try and journal almost every single day. And what that's done for me is not only, you know, like, are you able to get thoughts out on paper, but it's been fascinating to objectively be able to look back over the last two years at any given day 
right? And, and say, and ask yourself, what have I been spending time writing about? What do I actually care about? Right? And your answer is right there. Cause you've been writing about it for two years. You know what I'm saying? And what's been interesting to me is I've spent a lot of time writing about health, wellness, biotech, biosciences, et cetera. And I think that's at the end of the day, I could see myself starting a company in that space years from now, what it is specifically, I'm not quite sure, but you know, I think in a world of technology, things are changing very quickly and technology is building on itself to basically replace itself. I mean, look at ChatGPT. I think there's potential for it to eliminate the need of developers um, within our lifetime. And you got to ask yourself, like, where does that leave us? And I think when you consider the one constant variable across time and across technology, it's the human body. It doesn't change. And so when I look at opportunity, I look at, you know, what, how is technology, how are, you know, how are certain industries impacting the human body and what are the solutions that are needed, um, to preserve its state? Right. I mean, I think not to go off on too much of a tangent, but you look at like a lot of the, the modern day illnesses and diseases, and a lot of those are symptomatic of what were at the time considered technologies. I mean, look at the agricultural revolution and the incorporation of processed foods and sugars, et cetera. A lot of chronic disease in the U.S. is from those artificial sweeteners, those processed foods, et cetera, right? And so in an ironic way, a lot of the technologies that humans invent come back to, in a sense, bite us in the ass and at the same time, create opportunities for solutions um, to help cure those problems. Um, so I kind of like have been thinking a lot about opportunities within that space and, and potentially where, you know, what is the state of human health 25 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now? And just kind of thinking about what that looks like and where might opportunity be. And I think it's, it's pretty tremendous. And solutions are going to be much easier to arrive at given new technologies like ChatGPT, et cetera, that are essentially, you know, fairly competent assistance um, people. I have two quick questions. Uh, well, the second one's not as quick. So the first one is, and then we'll we'll get out of here because I know we have a, a hard stop, but um, what is your journaling practice? Like what is the actual step one, step two? Do you just blank shoot a paper, start writing or, or what does that look like? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of the, um, it's a little bit old school, but I'm a big fan of those like five-star notebook, you know, those five-star ringed binders or whatever they are. And basically, I kind of like where it's gotten to today. It's probably, you know, it's probably different for everybody and how they want to do it. But I'll basically do a page a day and you just write whatever is on your mind. Um, you know, it's not sort of guided. It's not structured. It's just sort of free flow. And it's been interesting because when I first started doing it, I mean, there were literally days where I'd write one sentence at the very top that was like, I don't have shit to talk about today. So that's that. And that would be the entry, right? And it's interesting because like over time, you kind of just get in the flow of it. And 
you know, now it's just like you sit down with pen and paper and it thoughts just sort of come. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is starting it and making a consistent effort to keep doing it. Consistency is the key to everything. Um, and then my last question, I would be remiss to not ask you about uh, the current state of the market. Obviously, First Republic having issues, SVB a few weeks ago, Signature Bank as an insider. And you don't have to, I know you could probably talk for an hour about this, but kind of what is your outlook on the situation? Uh, is there any unique takes that you might have? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think... Um, I think my answer might be a little bit unpopular, broadly speaking, but I think everything that you're seeing is incredibly healthy. Um, when you look at the very broad historical context, things have been very abnormal for the last 10 years, almost 15, we'll call it 15 years, probably 20 years, honestly, um, due to how cheap money has been and how much of it has been in the system. And so inevitably, when there's a lot of money in the system, a lot of excess capital floating around, a lot of what I might call non-essential or uh, not real value ideas get funded. Mm. And so, you know, I think, I don't know where you stand on NFTs or whatever, but I think NFTs are probably the pinnacle example, absolutely worthless things. Um, but you saw the valuations that, you know, those like apes or whatever were going for. It was, it was mind blowing. Right. And if you look back throughout history, right, that's been the story of any sort of bubble or mania, people investing money in things that don't really have any tangible value. And so as the feds pulled liquidity out of the system, I think you've seen a lot of that stuff go away. I mean, when's the last time you heard someone say something about an NFT? It's probably been months, right? And you start to see consumers become more thoughtful about where they're putting their money, what they're investing in, et cetera. Um, so I think as we move forward, right, and as this economy moves forward, you'll continue to see things sort of wash out and wash away. Um, but I think in a very healthy way, it's going to reset the economy to look at what's important, what is actually valuable, what is actually producing value, value to people, to the economy, and really sort of put the capital behind what needs sort of the ideas and the businesses that need actually need capital behind it. Um, so again, you know, it's, it's adjusting it different is sometimes going to be painful, obviously with inflation and, and less liquidity, there's a little bit of people are having to adjust their lifestyles. But in my opinion, we are adjusting our lifestyles to a very much historically, contextually more contextually more normal uh, lifestyle. Coming back to reality, uh, yeah, yeah, and I'll just say the way that I think about it is like, you know, there's a, a float, like a floating line, uh, and and that floating line is like positive NPV, and when you have. Uh, <clears throat> an increase in interest rates, that line goes up. And so only projects that are, uh, you know, meaningfully profitable above that line are going to be funded. And so, uh, you know, it really just washes out the things that don't make sense or only make sense when you have extremely cheap money. 
And now we're seeing uh, a time, you know, for the next couple of years where money's expensive and only good ideas get funded or only ideas with, with a really high profit potential get funded. Um, so I, I really appreciate that perspective. And I think that, uh, you know, you're coming at it from a historical perspective, which is interesting. And you're also an insider. So uh, hopefully that'll be valuable for our listeners. Will, we really enjoyed this and are, are grateful for to you for coming on. Is there anywhere on the internet that you would like our, uh, our guests to go? Uh, I don't know if we have any CEOs of, of credit unions or banks, um, but we do have some people. So where should they go to find you on the internet? What would you, what's your, your call to action? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and first off, really glad to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, if, if people are curious about Quantalytics, want to follow our story or want to connect with me, uh, I think LinkedIn is the best place to go. Um, so you can either search for myself or Quantalytics. Um, Excellent. Well, we appreciate your time and thank you. Yeah, thank you guys.